Almighty God, in this season of Advent, we remember how you broke in once to our miserable lives. You came to us in our squalor, in our hopelessness, and you brought us light, and you brought us life. Open our minds to hear your word, to receive it in our hearts, and to be transformed by it in our lives. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Greetings to everybody and a blessed Advent too. Uh, it is inevitable that one of the weeks that we're doing this series, we're overlapping with the Lessons and Carols, which is uh, the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock service this morning. And my recollection is, and I'll confirm it in about an hour, that the first two lessons of the Advent Lessons and Carols are the same as the two lessons that we read last week from Genesis. First, the, the fall and God's response to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, and then uh, and then the covenant to Abraham, the second lesson, where um, where it is promised to Abraham that because he has done this thing, that uh, his his seed will be the um, the vehicle by which God will redeem all of humanity back to Him, and the promise that His descendants would number the sands of the oceans and the stars of the sky. Um, this week, we move from the uh, first two lessons in Genesis, which describe the end of Eden and the beginning of God's response to the end of Eden, with the second uh, set of lessons, lessons three and four, which are from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And I call this um, session today, Darkness into Light. And I hope to wind up with that point more vividly. But before we read, I suppose I should offer the anecdote that I've offered before that I think is a context for understanding these two lessons and also some of the other lessons that we will read in subsequent weeks, which use some of the same imagery. I was having lunch a few years ago, actually breakfast, with a, um, a lay theologian, a really intelligent fellow, uh, not ordained, he'd never been to seminary, but he could read Latin and Greek. He was quite a classicist. And he was not too shabby with Hebrew either. But over breakfast, he, he posed the strangest, most out-of-the-way question. He said, why do you suppose that we, uh, that we don't light ourselves. We could have been made to glow like, like lanterns, but we don't. Instead, we have to be illuminated by some source outside of ourselves. And that led to an interesting conversation over our bacon and eggs and I hope to be able to tie that conversation back into the theme today, darkness into light. 
What I would appreciate is if two volunteers would read our lessons for us. First, Lesson 3, which you have in the handout, and then someone to read Lesson 4. If you like, I can set each one of them up with the uh, preamble which is provided uh, with each lesson. Remember, these are the lessons from Cambridge King's Chapel, which will be heard on Christmas Eve. Uh, Coffee, would you do the lesson three? Who would do lesson four for us? Okay, Um, then let's begin. Lesson three, the prophet foretells the coming of the Savior. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Lesson 4, the peace that Christ will bring is foreshown. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, And the leopard shall lie lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. Then they shall... They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well read. Thank you both. We move from the rather blood and guts narrative that we had in lessons one and two in Genesis to something altogether different in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And this is not uncommon in the Old Testament prophets for us to get lots of vivid imagery and in a way a sort of a Jewish Hebrew apocalyptic style of writing. If you want to read one a book in the Old Testament that sort of overlays the two, the narrative with the apocalyptic um, style, read the book of Daniel and the way the, the story is told of, of Daniel the prophet in Babylon and the prophecies that Daniel 
prophesize while in Babylon. And you'll get both the narrative of the nation of Israel and you'll get the apocalyptic vision of the Old Testament prophets. But these two readings, these Old Testament prophecies, give us something that is very vivid for the gospel story and it foretells in in two very vivid ways what the gospel will be. If we read, if we take highlights out of lesson three, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice, the zeal of the, horse, the Lord of hosts will perform this. These are all prophecies of the coming of Jesus the Christ. The birth that was foretold. The gospel uh, ministry of three years on the earth that was foretold. We get a glimpse of this in lesson three. Lesson four is a bit different. Lesson four speaks again beginning with the um, the stem that shall come forth of a rod out of out of Jesse. Uh, this is a clear reference to the Christ. But the image that we get at the end of that reading is a bit different. It is um, very Hebrew in that it repeats a theme over and over with opposites. Uh, the young lion and the fatling, uh, the cow and the bear, uh, the lion eating straw like the ox, the suckling child playing on the hole of the poisonous serpent, the weaned child putting his hand on the cockatrice den. The cockatrice was a, um, if you can imagine the, the Welsh dragon symbol, that's kind of what the cockatrice was. It was a, it was part Rooster, part eagle, part dragon, I believe. It was part serpent. It was a, a mythical, um, horrible creature, and it's used here in a in a way that is illustrative of the point. The innocent shall be safe among the predators. We remember that in the book of Daniel, that the prophet uh, used the image of wild animals as symbols of nations and we can get although we don't want to try to figure out whether Isaiah was referring to uh, the ox as Israel and the lion as Persia I don't think he was going that far we don't want to try to read too much into it but we get something of the same image the the nations of the earth that are um, at odds with one another will one day be at peace with one another. Well, if we look around us today, if we read the headlines, if we watch CNN, we know that that's not the case. That's not the world that we live in today. So we might think of Lesson 4 as something like an apocalyptic vision for the establishment after the second coming of the peace on all the earth when, as the Lord's Prayer says, His will shall be done in earth as it's done in heaven. 
this is the new Jerusalem. So in a way, I think we can read Lesson 3 as a prophecy of the Jesus who comes the first time in the Gospels, and in Lesson 4, a prophecy of the end times, of the Jesus who comes back to establish the new Jerusalem. And of course, that, that reading in Isaiah reminds all of us believers of the book of Revelation. It essentially states the same kind of prophecy in the same kinds of terms and in much of the same kinds of imagery. So again, in the context of the nine lessons and carols, we start with the, the narrative in Advent 1. We come this week to the prophecies in Advent 2 and all their vividness. Let's think about a little bit what, um, what some of this imagery is. Notice that in, as I mentioned before, in Lesson 4, we have enemies that are now at peace. The innocent are no longer endangered in the New Jerusalem. All my holy mountain. What a beautiful, uh, beautiful way to, to, to summarize those images. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. That is like a, another way of prophesying the new Jerusalem. Uh, and it's a glimpse, as I said, of the book of Revelation. Consider the image of the little child. We get it in both of these lessons. Lesson three, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And in lesson four, a little child shall lead them. In both cases, the prophecies are focusing on the fact that this answer that we that, that we um, got a glimpse of in the lessons we read last week, this answer from God to our rebelliousness would be a little child. How counterintuitive is that? How unlike what we tend to think of as as the intervention of God, just like the the first century Jews in in occupied Judea, we look for God as an avenging sort of conqueror on a white horse carrying a very large sword to set all things right. But that's the way we look at things. That's not necessarily the, the way God does it. He doesn't answer to our preconceived notions about what his intervention ought to be. Instead, and this is this could not be more more vividly laid out than it will be next week when when Steve covers all of the birth narratives in the uh, in the subsequent lessons, a little child born on the very edge, a backwater of the Roman Empire, and not even in any kind of circumstance, instead in the, an animal stable, lying in a feeding trough, unknown to the rest of the world. This is how the Savior will come. A little child will lead all of us out of the squalor that is the fallen world into this new Jerusalem. 
how how very unlike what we expect, but how very like the way God often acts. So we have um, also one other point that I wanted to make about the little child. Remember last week we had the angel telling Abraham, because you have done this thing, your name will be blessed and your seed shall be the the vehicle by which God redeems humanity. What this thing did the angel refer to? It was the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his son as God had commanded. Now, God held him back at the last moment. He spared him the duty of carrying out God's command to sacrifice his son. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul makes it clear that God did for us what he did not require Abraham to do for him. Because he did not spare his own son, Romans chapter 8, but gave him up for us all. That is a a parallel that we get from these references to the little child. Abraham was not required to sacrifice Isaac. But because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, he was the one who would be um, the, the father of all of us and the first in the line of the patriarchs designated by God to be the process by which he would address the rebellion in the garden that we read in lesson number one. Any thoughts about that? Eden before the fall and the new Jerusalem that will reestablish what was Eden in our relationship? I think there's no stronger point that could be placed on it than to remember the way Lesson 1 described the relationship between Adam and Eve and God before the fall. Remember, God was walking in the cool of the garden and he was looking for his children and they were hiding out from him because they had destroyed that Edenic relationship. But in Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem coming down and there shall be no more tears and there shall be no more um, of the uh, of the uh, heartache that that exists in the fallen world. So, in the very beginning of the Bible and the very end of the Bible, we see the bookends of the relationship broken and the relationship restored. And a little child shall be the vehicle by which that happens. Brian, I, I, I think also a, a newborn child is is just such a wonderful. Uh, illustration of, of you know the, the newness with this new covenant uh, the, the uh, you know uh, it, it's you know uh, it's this hope and change and, and a new thing happening um, that um, I mean that, that to me is a very strong uh, symbol well put 
here. Let me ask Go ahead, Frank. Yes. You made a statement or a comment earlier in in the in, the, uh, in this class, and I'd like to know where it came from. It's a question, a question about that we just don't like ourselves. Now I agree with that because one of the one of the things that falls off is talk. What I learned from the you know, Sunday school class or whatever, it made a lot of sense. Is that most people, and I'm one of them, believe that other people can be forgiven for their sins. And it's a lot easier to believe that than to believe in yourself. <coughs> Which is another way of saying, man, I'm so bad, I'll never, you know, I'll, I'll never, you know, and that's kind of goes along with what you said, people don't like themselves. And I have not, I'm just curious, my question is, is, did you, is that biblical or is, or is that just kind of a, did somebody teach you that, that comment that we don't like ourselves? That's the, just the, well, I think it's the human condition that we are that we are self-centered, we are egocentric, we are narcissistic, we think we do. When we come to, uh, let me make this a stronger point when we get to the ninth lesson on Advent 4, because there's a, there's a portion of that reading that doesn't show up in the in the actual lesson for Advent 4, they cut off John's prologue at verse 14, but I think that John's prologue needs to be read in its entirety up through verse 18. And in the portion that's cut off, which I intend to focus on on Advent 4, we, we read that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Well, let's think at the time we will focus on the relationship between the law and truth and then what grace does in that connection. But I believe the, answer, the short answer to your question, Frank, is that we were made in God's image so that even though we are rebellious creatures, we have that instinctive understanding of sin. It's in our hearts we have the moral sense, and I believe that's what the, the, the Old Testament writer meant by in God's image, that we have that, that moral spark that when we know ourselves, when we get, when Christ brings us truth before, you know, what we have to have is truth before we can be open to grace, and we'll focus on that again. But I believe that's the short answer to your question. Coffee, did you want to answer something about that? If you believe in the Easter miracle wholeheartedly, you can accept the fact that you are a broken human being, but that you are forgiven because Christ rose on Easter Sunday for you and for me and for everybody in the room. If we accept that miracle, then we don't have to hate ourselves we have to recognize that we are imperfect human beings. But we don't have to hate ourselves. And that is something that took me a long time to come to grips with, personally. But the Easter miracle is the be-all and end-all as far as I'm concerned to a Christian because that fulfills everything in the prophecies. 
There's nothing left except acceptance. To uh, <clears throat> tag along with a little bit of what John said about being in his image, because we are, um, that's when you don't hate the image that you are in, in because he created you for a plan and purpose. But you hate what you do because God himself, you agree with him on hating what you might do, which is whatever sin it might be, except for whatever it could be. But <clears throat> but the uh, it gets pretty serious when you think about it because you want to say that um, I can't forgive myself and yet God died, Jesus died, so that that would be possible. And one of the keys is that the, the, <clears throat> the evil one himself wants you to believe that it can't happen. So that would be saying, God, you're a liar. You didn't do this. And that's where it gets kind of serious. But, but it, he wants to kill, steal, and destroy the ones that are built in his image. So if you, if you end up um, hating <clears throat> um, self, it's denying the forgiveness that comes and calling God. <coughs> okay, I have a couple more points to make about about darkness and the light. Consider this point: that these two passages make it clear that this one act of God is going to change humanity forever. Some historians take the view that all history is cyclical, is circular, that the rise and the fall and the ebb and the flow of certain civilizations, certain empires is a repeated theme all through human history, and there's some truth to that, but when Isaiah writes, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He's making a clear statement that at least in this respect, history is linear. God intervenes one time and after the intervention, the increase of the influence of his intervention shall continue and shall never end. We get that impression also in lesson four, that at the point in time when the new Jerusalem is created, this process, this increase that began with the coming of Christ on that on that dark cold night in 3 BC if I get my um, if I get my lineology correct that what began in Bethlehem will be fulfilled in the New Jerusalem and the The, the rise and the fall of human endeavor will be nothing compared to the increase of God's endeavor. We get that apocalyptic language that makes it clear that that is the case. We have this 
change that is forever, that is repeated in uh, Isaiah 9, we get that again in Luke, in the birth story in Luke where the shepherds are, are hearing the heralds from heaven um, explaining to them how this shall be forever. History is not cyclical. History is linear. And history is God with us. Here's where we get the word Emmanuel applied to Christmas. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God is with us. Look how in Lesson 3, this child who is born is described. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is an unambiguous claim that this this Savior to come, foretold by Isaiah, will be God himself, will be Emmanuel. And I'll expound on that again, looking forward to Advent 4 and John's prologue. John has some extremely complex, condensed things to say about that, that take to task really all of all of the classical worldview, and in a way, all of the human worldview about that. Emmanuel, though, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, this response by God that was foretold in the Proto-Evangelium, that little reference to bruise his head, bruise his heel in the first reading, this will be God himself. And finally, to get back to the point that I started with, darkness into light. There is uh, no more fundamental imagery in the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures than the difference between darkness and light. In the creation story, the first thing that God did to bring about the creation of the heavens and the earth was to declare, let there be light. And remember, it was the light that responded to not just darkness, but chaos. Go back to Genesis 1 and read the description of what was there before God said, let there be light. It is an image of unsettled chaos. Well, that happens to be a pretty good image for our modern world. Yet, in Lesson 3, Isaiah writes, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And we will get that again in John's prologue in Advent 4. Not to build it up too much, but from darkness into light, John uses dark and light imagery all through his gospel. Remember that when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he came at night. Remember that when uh, Judas left the upper room to go and betray Jesus, John adds the little detail, and it was night. So we get the clear impression from all of the scriptures that darkness is a metaphor for our sinfulness, for our misery, 
for our squalor, for everything that has existed since the end of Eden and our perfect relationship with God. But light is what he sends to bring order out of chaos. Coffee, did you want to comment on that? Time, the timeline of history is limited. The events of history may describe a sound wave about that line from peaks to valleys, just like we have the peak of sunlight at noon, nautical noon, at nautical midnight, midnight is the absolute darkness. But there is about that peak of light and peak of dark physically a timeline that is linear. Okay. I like that. Okay. That's, well, that just has been playing on my mind. Well, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting way of putting it. Um, that the ups and downs of human history, if you will, are, um, are moving along that linear line since God... Yeah, right, right. Okay, I like that. It, well, certainly we have had periods in our history as well as periods in our own lives where we have felt more sunshine than darkness. Yes, and just as we have felt more sunshine than we have felt darkness, we have occasionally felt far more darkness than we have felt sunshine. But if we remember that that the darkness was turned to light, was separated from the light. When God first said, let there be light, and then he separated them, and he called the darkness night, and he called the light day, he's beginning to bring order out of chaos. And just as that image in Genesis makes that point, so does the image in Isaiah. The people who have walked in the darkness have seen a great light. So let me get back to the point that the lay theologian was making when he asked me that bizarro question about why we don't glow like lanterns or like the faces of our illuminated watches. We don't illuminate our own path. We cannot illuminate our own path. On our own, we walk in darkness. Only when we see a great light, only when that light shines upon us, do we have illumination. Similarly, to take the metaphor to its obvious conclusion, we do not have righteousness in and of ourselves. We're incapable of it. Righteousness only comes from outside ourselves. And it only comes from God. It took the Creator to say, let there be light. Nothing else could create that light. Nothing else could be that light. We can't be that light. But the Old Testament prophets give us an image that the source of light will come to us. The source of light will come to us as a little child 
and will lead us from our post-Eden squalor, our chaos, our darkness, will lead us to this new Jerusalem. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There can be no more complete image of the, the light that will control after the coming of the new Jerusalem. So we look forward to Advent 3 and the birth story in the coming of this Messiah, and then we'll wrap it up on Advent 4, and then we will play out for ourselves again the actual coming of the Messiah. Margaret? Like Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you all. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Amen. See y'all next week.